this is a deeper dive into things. It's, it's a hot button topic yes. and it's... Um, Especially since it's not going to be going away. Because there are a lot of different carbon programs. We have to be able to coach and help people understand how to mitigate those issues. They can't hear your heads shake. So. <laughs> Welcome to the MFA Made for Agriculture podcast. Here are your hosts, Adam Jones and Cameron Horine. All right, folks, welcome to another episode of the Made for Agriculture podcast. My name's Adam Jones. And I'm Cameron Horine. And we're back today, 2023. We're actually back. We have really cool guests with us today, Cameron. So I um, want to kind of talk a little bit today, uh, I hope anyway, here, um, about conservation, about kind of spring cover crops, uh, spring soil health stuff. And um, with us today is our, our new MFA uh, conservation specialist, uh, Emily. And so, Emily, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yep. I'm Emily Beck. I just started in February with MFA, and so I'm super excited for this role. I originally was with NRCS as a soil conservation technician, so designing terraces, ponds, helping cover crops, things like that for farmers. Um, So, yeah, I'm very excited for this role, especially. So, just a little bit of background on, um, so MFA, we we have two uh, conservation related positions kind of, uh, on our conservation focused positions, I should say, kind of on our agronomy team, uh, one related to grazing. And you've, uh, if you've listened to any of our podcasts before, you've probably heard Landry Jones talk about, um, conservation grazing techniques and stuff. And so he's one of those positions. And then Emily is our other one that's, that's kind of the more real crop based position that that's kind of in North Missouri, kind of covering all aspects there. And it's, it's really, it's been really cool. I think that um, that a uh, private, you know, member-owned cooperative. We've we've had the ability to to uh, push some of that information out to our employees, to our customers, to our member owners, to our staff. Um, really, kind of keeping both the company and growers and producers up on uh, kind of emerging conservation topics. And it, it's good to have somebody kind of dedicated just to just to kind of watching that channel, if you will, right and um, seeing things before they come out and being able to give our staff a heads up and, and some of those kind of things. Also allowing, honestly, allowing some of our producers and our customers to, to not miss out on opportunities. And um, I, I think that's a big deal. And um, it's it's really great to have somebody on staff to, uh, to kind of keep an eye and watch out for those things. So we're definitely excited to have you here, uh, Emily, excited for the, the uh, enthusiasm and, and everything that you bring to the position and MFA is definitely better for having you on. So, uh, so welcome aboard for sure. So give us a little background on, uh, kind of what you've been up to in the last, has it only been 30 days, I guess that you've been on uh, a month um, and some change. Okay. Sure. month and some change. Um, so kind of give us a little update on, on what you kind of got caught up on and, and kind of some of the stuff. I know you've been uh, working quite a bit with wrapping up our carbon pilot and stuff like that. So you can go into some of that if you want to as well. Yes. So right whenever I started on, like he was saying, is that we had a carbon program and we we're kind of fizzling slowly out of that and ramping up another one. And so just getting that company on board, getting our staff on board, getting knowledgeable, but also making sure we're going to the open houses that MFA has, but also grower meetings um, to have those to get more information out about carbon. Yeah. Because carbon credits is definitely... It's, it's a hot button topic yes. and it's the, the basis of it, you know, hasn't, doesn't really change a whole lot. You know, the, the kind of the fundamentals, the, the building blocks of it don't really change. But 
but kind of the programmatic and and the the data entry and 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 the MRV platform that kind of has the best offering that seems to change or at least has changed you know in the in the 18 months to 2 years that that we've kind of been monitoring slash you know having an offering of of some sort in the in the carbon space um so yeah, th- there's a lot to kind of keep up with, and if you move from one, you know, one platform to the other, or or whatever, and 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 part of it is is that you know we, as in, uh, it's our responsibility to to you know position the best what we see, what we feel is the best program to our customers, our our member owners, right? So um, sometimes that means changing gears and um, a little bit, and that's that's kind of what we've done, and that's. Um, that's on me. That's kind of what I, so <laughs> what I you. tasked you with, um, when you, when you kind of first started there was, was making a little bit of a transition and, and trying out some new, uh, new platforms. I think we'll have a lot of upside to, for our growers. So, yes, cause there are a lot of different carbon programs. Yeah. A lot of different ones. I think you touched, I think you guys both touched on it and that's where, from my perspective, just as that being a buzzword and we talking about it. It's just the nuances of every single program that's out there is how do you even keep them straight? Um, how do you know which ones, like Adam said, between the changes of the MRV programs for each one, how do you keep that straight? So that's where I think it's critical from our side where somebody like Adam before and now Emily in this role is as a company, we have somebody who can help kind of guide our employees, but also our producers to have a better understanding of some some of these programs and which ones are better fit. Yeah. Yeah, and I think Emily, you'll you'll pick up on this uh, as you move forward. If, if you kind of pay attention to to the general ag media, you'll get somewhat frustrated in the m- number of people who talk about carbon and carbon programs, and uh, versus the number of people who actually have an understanding of the enrollment and getting on board and getting rolling in one of those carbon programs. And everybody seems to have opinion an opinion about them. And uh, that opinion is definitely not based on any understanding of any of the current programs. I don't. I definitely don't want to use the word misinformation space, but it's it's just it's a confusing world out there, and there's a lot of people throwing out advice that don't necessarily have the background or credibility to be throwing out advice. I mean, I I still question. I, heck, I've been you know tracking the marketplace for a couple of years now, and I I still question my. I mean, I I tell people here's like, well, here's what I would look at, you know, and, and here's kind of the things I would think about. Um, but I still don't necessarily know that, uh, I feel real comfortable about telling somebody, yes, you definitely need to, or no, you definitely not don't need to. Um, but there's definitely a lot of people out there who seem to be able to share that opinion very confidently. And so, um, it's just, yeah, the biggest thing is, is having somebody who monitors the space and, uh, being able to answer, honest questions about it right especially um, since it's not going to be going away absolutely no yeah. that that's the thing it's you're looking at a, a system that is in some form is going to be around right i think what that form is and what it looks like 10 years from now is still i don't know that i still can confidently answer you what what that will be but what i can tell you from just looking at the private dollars invested and the government dollars invested is that there will still be dollars available to do whether you want to call them climate smart practices, whether you want to call them soil health practices, we can call them regenerative practices. I don't necessarily care the label you put on it, but there will be dollars either from the private marketplace or 
federal government dollars, state government dollars, local watershed dollars available to do these things for, for the foreseeable future. So, and I, and I think if you're interested in implementing them on your farm, the carbon path is, is something that you should not ignore. So, I mean, that's, you know, there, there's offset credits and there's inset credits and stuff like that. And there, you know, there's stuff that rides with the grain uh, you know, there's a lot of new government money in the next year or two here, some of it related to carbon, some of it not necessarily related to carbon. And so there's just, there's going to be a lot of funding opportunities out there. And so I don't think it's something that can be ignored. You know, also, I, I think the the more things that you can kind of stack in your favor there and you differentiate yourself a little bit from an operational standpoint um, is a good thing. So I definitely agree. But so you mentioned that we were kind of wrapping up one one portion of our, our carbon offering there, which we were kind of coming up on the end of our, our pilot with with the SMC. And so I don't know if you've got any comments kind of coming out of that or not. I know you kind of just started, but I can kind of tell you what, what, what I think we learned or what I think we took out of that process. They were definitely more science-based, so I know there was a lot more on that end as opposed to some of the other ones, um, and so yeah. Yeah, so ESMC was a, a nonprofit. Um, it was, uh, they sponsored our pilot, and it was good relationship. We still have a good relationship with them. Um, it, it was definitely a lot of burden on the, um, the third party or kind of us, um, so we did that pilot in conjunction with Missouri Corn, Missouri Soybean, um, and there was, yeah, there was a lot of field kind of leadership and, and field work uh, associated with that. Uh, that was definitely put on us. Uh, worked great for the pilot. I don't think that was necessarily sustainable on our front with labor costs and <laughs> fuel costs and all those kind of things uh, to do completely moving forward. Our kind of our, the next chapter here, I believe, is that we are, um, we do have a, an agreement signed as a a pilot with uh, with Indigo Carbon too. So I don't know if you want to talk about that for just a second. Yes. So we do have some boots on the ground with Carbon by Indigo um, in Missouri. So that's been very helpful. And then we've been training our folks with MFA throughout the state, just what Indigo is and how it would be beneficial for the landowners. And it is something that's a free carbon program for the, the growers to sign up for. Um, just and you could do a lot of different practice changes within it it's more flexible with the landowner what they're wanting with their farm how they're kind of wanting to grow their farm and you can actually capture two years in the past with carbon by indigo if you if you'd already started some of these practices because i know that's a lot of times growers are concerned that they've already done it i can't get into it um, but with carbon by indigo they can capture those two years with that um, yeah yeah, that's, I was going to say that. I think that's one of the nuances that I know from just being in tra some trainings and stuff with Carbon by Indigo that was it was fairly favorable was is the fact that you can go back on a couple of years. Um, you know, we know a lot of people have changed practices here in the last few years. And, well, you know, Adam and I have talked about it before, uh, whether off, off the mic or not. Okay, so if I want to get in these practice changes, should I just go fill up, till up everything so then I can all of a sudden get in these carbon programs or not? Well, that's one of these things that we can do with carbon by indigo. So, yeah, agreed. And and like Emily mentioned, they've they've got staff in Missouri, and and we feel like we have support to better be able to you know to put acres in the program and feel more confident about it. Um, the nice thing for us is that 
what it really kind of puts on us then is is some of that data aggregation and and it's kind of the data background help with the producer because you know we kind of know what's what's went on um, in that producer's operation and can help you know help integrate on the data side which which I really feel like is is kind of our role in the in the whole scheme of things um, as the retailer and um, and a little less of the kind of the field work boots on the ground stuff um that's a little more outside our our zone so i I think it's great um and you can even get more money double dipping with government programs correct so yeah one thing with yep one thing with with indigo as well is that yeah absolutely you can um it's it's not using government funds at all so if you want to do equip or um or csp or get state cost share for cover crops or whatever uh all those things can be uh, can be combined with uh, with an indigo carbon payment and um, moving forward. So that's that's definitely a, a positive there as well. And, and also, I, I look at it a little bit on the the marketing side, right? So you know, I think um, grower facing uh, with with some of these carbon programs, you know, whether the whether that MRV or that platform, I guess, you know, sells that carbon credit for $30 or whether they sell it for 40 or 50 or 60, uh, it's all the same amount of work from the grower side of things, right? And really the only thing that changes is the amount of dollars that grower gets back. And so as, as you look at kind of the, the competition of, of these grower, you know, facing carbon platforms, um, I feel like that's a lot of it, right? Is, is kind of who has the traction to be able to, to sell the credits to the end user um, for, for the most money. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hate to simplify it to that level, right? To, for the most money, but, but the reality is, is that most of these platforms are all, all standardizing on the same standards. They're all asking for the same data. You're looking at the same time commitments. Um, you, you know, all of them are pretty darn close on that end of things. The, the, it seems like one of the larger variances is the amount of zeros on the check that you get. And, um, and and let's be honest, if we're going to try to quantify our time and doing all that data entry, that's important. So uh, in another way, in another realm there, I, I also feel like Indigo has the relationships to, to sell the credits mm-hmm. properly. So, yes, at the end and we of the have day. seen that. So um, anyway, cool. No, I, I appreciate that and like appreciate your efforts on that side of things. And um, it's a it's a whole new world. And something that when I started as conservation specialist four or five years ago, it was not, I want to say not on the radar, but it was definitely not something that was kind of in the, uh, in the daily duties of that position. And, and now it certainly is so, and, and needs to be, and, and you're doing great. So we appreciate that. Um, one other kind of nuts and bolts thing that we wanted to talk about a little bit today was, um, was kind of spring cover crop management. Um, it seems like a, a timely, uh, timely topic and a a timely thing to talk about um, as far as, you know, termination, spring management. I know we've covered some of these things on the podcast before. Um, There have been some things that, you know, have kind of changed in the, in the background, um, you know, as well as, as, as we've moved, moved on and definitely learned some things over the years in, in kind of how we manage cover crops going in, into the spring. Um, So the first thing I kind of wanted to say, I guess, was, that um, anytime that you plant a, the, I guess the first disclaimer, I will put it that way, is that anytime, anytime that you plant a cover crop in the fall that, that is going to overwinter and come out and grow in the spring, something like, you know, wheat or crimson clover or anything that's going to come up and 
potentially compete with your cash crop the following year. Um, we, we really need a plan in place to, to try to manage that in the, the following spring, right? When, when are we going to terminate it? What are we going to terminate it with? Um, you know, what growth stage is that? We can't necessarily put dates on a calendar and say we're going to do it exactly at this time, but, but we definitely need to have a termination plan. And then how are we going to get that cash crop in place, right? Um, it's it, kind of, it really goes back to um, one of my favorite quotes always is, is David Doctorian always says, do no harm, right? So we know we need to we know we need to advance soil health. We know we can do a lot of these positive things um, for our tillable acre, right? We can inf we can increase infiltration. We can reduce erosion. We can do all these things with cover crops. But during that process, we need to make sure we're not doing harm to our cash crop rotation, right? We all have bills to pay at the end of the year. So um, that's the biggest thing is, like I said, if we're going to plant something out there, uh, we know we need a plan plan to manage that. So. I think what the easiest way to do this would probably be to, to break kind of break things up into a couple different categories. Um, so if we're uh, let's start with the if we start with the harder or the easier of the two, <laughs> but um, we probably ought to start with the acre that's going to corn, um, and because that's the more complicated acre, right? Um, so I, I think the easiest way to do it would be if if we've got a cover crop going to corn, um, we we've got a lot more potential for competition um, with that cash crop. Um, corn is a, um, is a fussy bean as far as uh, emergence growth without competition, all those kinds of things. And uh, really to maximize yield, uh, we've got to have all, these, all those things right throughout the growing season, which includes planting it into a cover crop possibly. So um, we definitely need to, to manage that that cover crop appropriately. So I think for most people that involves terminating um, at a reasonable time before planting, that's that's kind of been my, I know my personal recipe on, uh, on my farm as far as getting no-till corn established is I'm usually looking to to kill that cover crop a couple weeks before I try to plant corn. Um, there's, there's folks out, another disclaimer here, there's plenty of folks out there planting green into corn and for, they're planting corn green um, and, and having some success with it. So um, that, that certainly can be an option, but I would, I would step out on a limb and say there's a little more risk there. So. Um, and it is challenging because you do have to plant or plant corn sooner than you would a soybean. So it is a little bit more challenging. Correct. Correct. Right. Yeah. We're usually trying to get in the field um, a little earlier there. And so, and so, yeah, there's a lot to do in kind of a condensed, time time frame from a from a spring perspective um one one nice thing is that you know, glyphosate prices have come down this year and i know like it was last year or the year before i guess it was probably last year cameron that everybody was talking about oh, i'm not going to plant cover crops because i can't get round up yep. to kill them and all that kind of stuff and luckily that all, all that goop is i feel like over with um and glyphosate prices have come down and it, that makes me happy because that is probably our go-to herbicide for killing a lot of those uh, winter cereal grains that typically are used as cover crops, right? Right. We can try to use other chemistry and it just doesn't work very good <laughs> as from a termination standpoint. And honestly, we need to be careful even with glyphosate this early in the spring if we're out there trying to, to terminate a cover crop. Um, 
So, you know, like I said, we're not just looking at a date on the calendar and, and saying, okay, it's great. It's time to hook up a sprayer and take off. You know, we kind of need to look at the growth stage of that plant and look at kind of what we've done to it. And when we get ready to go spray, um, like I said, you know, I, I really feel like glyphosate's our, our easy, easy button there to make sure we take care of that. Uh, but we need the right weather to make that happen. So, yeah. You got anything to add there for uh, best days to spray and that kind of stuff? Um, no, I mean, I think I think one of the things that, you know, we've talked about, I know we've talked about it at least once before on this podcast, but we've talked, talked about it a lot too, is you mentioned at least going into corn, you spray and terminate your cover crop a couple weeks beforehand. Um, I know I've talked with producers, that's even even not just for corn but for beans sometimes that's that's the biggest challenge that they face when they are doing cover crops is is okay well i terminated two weeks before but then it kept be it, it stayed wet after that and so then any chance i got to try to plant i was planting into a mat and it just mm-hmm. i was set up for failure at that point right yep. and so you know we have to be able to we have to be able to coach and help people understand how to mitigate those issues and it's, it's not necessarily, I mean, I know we've talked about it. Um, it's not necessarily just, hey, you can spray it. When it dries out, you're going to be able to plant You're going to have issues just fine. This is a deeper dive into things, right? And so planter setup has a huge piece of being successful planting into cover crops, whether it be planting into green or planting in termination. And so I don't know that we have time today to dive into that. But, you know, Adam and I, you, we've talked about it. Um, we talked about it. Um, I'm trying to think of of the guy's name who's was at our Soul Health um, day. David Doctorian's Paul Yasa. Um, yeah, Paul Yasa. He's I mean he's he's talked about a lot of different ways to set up planters yep. and to help from that aspect of being successful when you plant into cover crops, whether that be green termination. But I know that's one of the biggest challenges. That's I, I shouldn't say that's one of the biggest challenges. It's probably the part of the story that gives people the most headache and probably turns their nose up from. Um, mm-hmm. cover crops when it comes to especially going into corn is the termination yep. period and when how, how are you successful with that yeah it's it's tricky right we, we get cold wet springs and um, if we terminate at the wrong time we can really set ourselves up to to fight that moving forward yeah uh, and again I'm going to go back to my disclaimer where I said if you plant a cover crop in the fall that's going to overwinter we need to be prepared for that and so right. I really feel like part of that preparedness um, or part of that preparedness that I'm looking at anyway is uh, seeding rate of that cereal grain, right? So how much am I putting out there? Am I able to accomplish my goals for that cover crop by putting less on, which is going to give me less biomass to worry about terminating and falling down on the ground the next spring? Um, I really feel like with corn, that's the case. You know, I've got quite a bit of uh, cover crop to to terminate this spring that that's going into corn and I, I have no issues with it right now because you know I, I broadcasted like 20 pounds of wheat and there's some crimson clover in there right so even though it looks green from the road I don't have a lot of biomass out there yeah and and that's really what I'm looking at is that even if I let that wheat get reasonably tall before I kill it um when you actually burn it off of there and the wheat dies I'm still going to be able to get sunlight to the ground and, and that's the key for if you're looking at no-till, a no-till acre for being able to dry it out, um, you know, adequately enough to get the planter through there and, and get a good um, get a good job uh, yep. on that planting pass. So, 
Um, again, I, I think it's thinking about that all ahead of time, right? We're not going to go out there and plant 60 pounds of cereal rye and say, okay, we're going <laughs> to, we're going to put this to corn and we expect everything to, to, to just go off without a hitch, right? That's, um, I think that's a little unreasonable. We need to, we need oh, to plan ahead a little bit. Yeah. So, but, um, yep, that's, that's the great, like I said, good, good stuff as far as, um, being able to burn down ahead of time. Um, I did want to cover a little bit about the C to N ratio because you'll hear a lot of things about corn and and some of these cereal grains and um, whether it's allelopathy or or what it is that you know, folks have struggled with in planting and I, I've heard kind of both ways you know at this point you know obviously there are, there are a lot of these cereal grains including cereal rye and some of those things like that uh they they have a they exhibit allelopathic characteristics right they will suppress small seeded broadleafs and small seeded other things that that try to grow up in them i feel like corn itself is fairly resistant to that we're putting it two and a half inches in the ground it's a large seed i, I think it can overcome a lot of that um me just my personal opinion off of some of these things that i've seen some fields that i've seen i feel like a lot of it comes down to seed to end ratio a lot of it comes down to um, what we did during that planter pass that makes the corn look, for lack of a better term, crummy when it comes up, right? Maybe what uh, do we have, not necessarily just nitrogen, but nutrient cycling in that no-till system? Is it a no-till system that's been chisel plowed every year for the last 30 years, and now all of a sudden we've just decided to make it a no-till system? Well, that's not going to perform well for a while. Um, even with cover crops, you're probably talking of a year or two of a, of a, a decent transition there. So something to think about. Um, we did do some stuff that was, I thought was pretty cool, um, last year and that we monitored some of these cover crops throughout the spring to kind of, um, keep track of that seed in ratio. And really when do we hit that wall as far as getting that real hard high carbon residue, that's not going to break down quickly. Um, that would, um, definitely, gobble up a lot of nitrogen in a system and and probably affect our our corn crop and it it varied a little bit by species right the um but it also happened very quickly and i think that's that was the real take-home point for me when when looking at a lot of that because i think you you assume that okay it's it's not an issue when it's small it's not an issue as it grows a little bit and we think of it as kind of a linear relationship right we think of it as well we've got a fairly low seed in, fairly low seed in, and then just kind of gradually builds over time. So the longer we leave it out there, the bigger of the deal it was. And um, what we really found from looking at that is that that's actually not true. It's it's uh, it's more of like what I would term falling off a cliff, right? So even as that, say wheat, for example, um, gets pretty tall, it actually essentially has the same seed to end ratio it did when it was fairly small. Um, but when it starts to go reproductive, it is a cliff. And if you fall off that cliff, you will have residue that will be there for two years. So, um, it's one of those things that I think more has to do with growth stage. I guess plant growth stage is probably a better way to, to put it, um, than it is plant size or tonnage or anything like that. So, um, that was definitely something I learned. One thing I learned for sure that, that you can even have some, you know, maybe knee high or better wheat out there. And it's still going to have a reasonably low C to N ratio and it's going to melt away pretty quickly. So if you're comfortable with that amount of residue, I don't know necessarily know from that point of view um, that, that you're going to hurt yourself um, a significant amount there as long as the tonnage is low enough that allows it to kind of be reabsorbed. 
but um, another thing that that I thought or one of the other take home points I, I had from that um, was the root system and how the root system has a bit different C to N ratio than the, the top residue, right? So when we look at when you kill a plant with herbicide, like you kill a plant with Roundup or something, um, as the soil essentially decomposes that, that plant residue, the first thing that's going to go is, our, is that root system, right? And um, I think one thing that we need to consider is that we can measure that top growth all we want and, and know that we're okay from a C to N ratio wise. But the first thing that the soil is going to reabsorb is that root system. And that root system is a degree higher in C to N ratio than what the, the plant residue was. That's what we found anyway, by actually digging up some roots and sent them to the lab. So um, anyway, that was, that was something else to, to consider in that the larger the plant you know, the, the larger the root system that you're going to have there and the more of that material that that soil has to kind of reabsorb. Um, so those were just a couple take homes that, that I feel like I, that we found last year um, when actually kind of cutting and measuring and, and doing some work from a, from a C to N ratio perspective. But I know I rambled there on that for a little bit. Um, Cameron mentioned planter setup. It's a big deal. You know, we did, we did, he mentioned Paul Yossa. There's some good YouTube videos out there on, and it really, honestly, the, the take home point there is that you do not have to buy $50,000 a row in, um, you know, add-ons and bolt-ons and in front of the row and back of the row stuff to be able to plant no-till corn. Um, most of our modern row units that are on these planters, um, and I consider modern that anything that made from, 1985 till now, right? I should say 1986 till now because that's when I was born. Um, we'll call that modern. But uh, <laughs> uh, but any of those row units can be set up to do no-till very, very well. Um, the biggest thing is just um, an even more of an attention to detail on the wear parts, right? Um, yep. You know, openers and bushings and um, parallel arms and all that kind of stuff um, are a degree more important when no-tilling corn than when conventional tilling corn, with conventional planting corn. Um, the, I guess the one thing that I would say is that you probably want some sort of aftermarket closing system on there um, because that's the biggest thing is, is trying to get the, the trench closed with the standard rubber wheels that came on there in 1986 they just don't work that great unless you're in optimal soil conditions. So um, I, I feel that's really the only add-on that I have on my planner. The rest of it is, like I said, just, you know, being prepared to take every one of those row units apart every single year and not necessarily rebuild, but just essentially make sure that everything is, is kind of calibrated and all your wear parts are correct and all that kind of stuff. So um, just a real attention to detail on the planner and uh, that'll, that'll pay off big time in no-till corn planting conditions. But anyway, we have anything else to add on the corn side before we touch on the soybeans just a little bit? I feel like no-tilling corn is peak high up here, you know, <laughs> that everybody wants to be that person that can finally get to that, yep. do cover crops, and then no, no... It's something that folks struggle with and, and will continue to. You know, I... Um, a lot of it is is somewhat de determined by soil type, right? I feel like if you if your farm has lighter, um, more well drained soils, you will have better luck no-tilling corn. 
Um, you know, when, once you kind of get into that medium to heavier textured soils that just do not want to dry out very well, it, it becomes more of a challenge. The, the nice thing I will say about some of our modern corn hybrids and kind of what we've shown in the last few years, Emily, is um, we don't need to be out there on April 5th sticking corn in the ground, um, especially from a no-till standpoint. And I, we really need that soil temperature to be up. And, and that, I think, also is going to help with some of those, you know, I'm, I'm using air quotes right now, allelopathic effects of cover crops, right? I think if, if the soil is 65 degrees, a lot of that stuff goes away and we just don't see it. You know, um, that, that plant shoots out of the ground and just is a lot more healthy of a plant. And we can raise some really, really good corn that's planted in the middle of May. Um, I know that may not sound like the most popular opinion, um, again, if, if you go by the talking heads, but I'm telling you that it, it absolutely is, is true. You know, we, we've proven, I think over the last five years, then just like, look at what our, not necessarily what our planned planting date is, but what's our actual average planting date on a lot of our corn and what's our actual average yield on that corn. And the actual average planting date is probably reasonably late, probably in May sometime. And our actual average yield is really good on those acres if we can get them in the ground good. So that's definitely how I view no-till corn. Um, I don't really want to be out there doing it before May 1st in North Missouri. I just, you know, we typically don't have the soil temperatures to, to um, produce a high success rate off that, I don't feel like. Do you think a lot of push of it is because of crop insurance, trying to get in on that date for crop insurance? Um, that's definitely part of it. I mean, that, that date's always kind of looming in the back of your mind, but it, it's it's a lot of it is is just, you know, operation efficiency, right? We've got to be able to pull the planter to that field, stick in the ground and take off and, and get out and decide that it's not working and you pick up your planter and drive back to the shed. And that is very, very hard if you've got a couple thousand acres to cover and a couple weeks to do it in. Like, I get it. <laughs> but in successfully no-tilling corn, that's that's a decision that you have to be prepared to make. And uh, it's a tough one, right? It's a tough one. It, like I said, they're just some soil types and things like that, that make it a lot easier, but it's it's an attention to detail from the planter to how the furrow is, is opening and closing as you're driving across the field. And you just, yeah, it's it's there's a lot of touch and feel in it as well, I would say. Moving on to uh, moving on to soybeans, I guess. Um, so soybeans are easier, I will say. That's why I wanted to make sure we covered corn first. Um, soybeans are much easier to uh, to get established in cover crops. You know, obviously we're not work worrying about that C to N ratio. We're not worrying about that kind of gobbling up of the the soil nitrogen. And um, actually, that's a good thing for soybeans, right? We can encourage nodulation that way. So. Uh, for soybeans, I think I'm going to go back to, to what Cameron said for sure, which is um, if, if you are not comfortable with, with planting into green cereal rye or green wheat or whatever it is, um, early termination can be a great great tool there as well, uh, somewhat similar to the corn. We just want to make sure we're able to, after we kill that cover crop, we want to make sure we get sunlight to the surface of the soil, right? That's the only way we're going we're gonna to dry it out. So if we've got too much residue on there, I just encourage you to, if you weren't planning on planting green, please wait and just do it. 
<laughs> because that that's essentially in my mind our two options there. We either terminate really, really early mm-hmm. to where we get plenty of, of sunlight to that soil surface, or we just wait and we plant green into that growing cover crop and then we'll kill it with herbicide once it's planted. So Yeah, that's that's exactly what my thoughts are too is is I feel like everybody the complaint the again, the biggest complaint everybody always has is is they either didn't terminate early enough so that they couldn't get sunlight in or and they ended up with too much residue and well they're scared of planting green. Well in reality Planting green would be much easier than trying to plant in too much dead residue that never let your soil dry up. Your mat of vegetation never dried up and you just cause bigger issues than what you would have had if you were just planted green. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that's exactly right. It's just, it's, it's a, it's a tough game when you go and, and guys will get nervous. You know, people get nervous about when the cereal arrives, when you get into that stem elongation phase and somebody's like, Hey, this is a great idea. And the next time you drive by that field, it's five foot tall. It's menacing, right? I get it. I, t- I get it. Cause I've been there and, and it is menacing, but the worst thing you can do is one of those knee jerk reactions and go out there and spray it. Um, because at that point, uh, it goes down probably still that early right as it kind of hits that stem elongation phase, it goes down. And if you get a rain on that, um, you you know, you're early July trying to get that stuff dried out. So, um, there is a lot to be said for that plant, um, going into reproduction, transpiring water out of the soil profile, uh, evaporating it into the air, right? That plant is cycling tons of water out of that, um, out of the soil profile and and when you stop that which is nearly instantly when you spray it with roundup when you stop that um you're destined for wet soils and poor planting conditions um and so it's um it's menacing but it, it definitely works i mean it like i said it it will take a lot of water out of the soil profile if you've got a, a good stand of, of rye or wheat or something like that out there the one thing I will say on the cereal rye and soybeans thing is um, folks have, have jumped into to rolling and, and doing some things like that, which I think there's a lot of benefits from. Um, but also if it's a possibility to manage, um, it, it's going to manage a little bit uh, on the C to N ratio, not a little bit, dead on exactly like what stuff before corn does in that if you can terminate that cereal rye um, prior to uh, essentially seed set, um, or, you know, at, or at, or before flowering, if you can terminate it that early, it will go down. It goes down really well. If it completely goes to seed and you spray it, <laughs> it's going to stand there. Um, and then it's just one of those things that you've got to manage through. Right. Um, but it's just, I, I will tell you this just to keep it in mind in, in the fact that if you can plant green and terminate, uh, by cereal rye flowering, that would be what I would consider probably the most ideal scenario because it's going to fall down, create a nice residue mat for you, um, and, uh, and help you with weed control, like what you want it to, um, during most of the rest of that growing season. Um, if you end up planting soybeans really late and it's already gone to seed or, or at dough stage or whatever, and we go out there and spray then, um, we just need to be prepared for how we're going to deal with it because, um, it's, 
it, it will fall down through the season and probably not cause any issues at harvest or anything like that as long as we're um, doing it all correctly there. But uh, but it's not going to go down near as well or create that mat near as well as it will earlier in the season if you terminate it a little bit earlier. So that's why guys are looking at rolling options. Um, and like I said, I think it's I think it's a great it's a great idea. It's just something that you know. Last I checked, those rollers were about a thousand dollars a foot, and so um, when you're looking at adding a piece of equipment like that to an operation, it um, yeah, I mean there's there's ROI calculations that need to be made there. So which I think some soil and water districts, I know they have equipment, so you might want to check with your soil and water to see if yeah. they have. Yeah, it, I think that would be a cool piece of equipment for for folks to to. For some of those kind of folks to have to to rent out to to people, but that it's one of those things that everybody needs it in the same ten day period for the year, right? You know, um, so it's it's hard. That's 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 the hard part of the rental equipment game, mm-hmm. you know. But anyway, so what other parts of spring cover crop management did we miss? I feel like I rambled on for quite a bit of this episode. I apologize about that. Hopefully, um, hopefully it was good, timely kind of spring cover crop information but they can't hear your heads shake so <laughs> yeah, I, know. I was i don't know i think i think we touched on it fairly well mm-hmm. um it's really it's really just about planning i mean mm-hmm. it's to be successful it's about planning and it's having a game plan of how you're how you're going to attack it to be successful that's right and it shouldn't be something you should be thinking about right now. It should have been something that sure. when you were deciding what yep. cover crop, how you're going to terminate that. Yep. You can think about it right now for like next year's crop. Yes. Yep. That's absolutely right. Being ahead of the game, being a year or two years down the road, um, trying to build to that system where you know exactly what works for you and what works for your system as far as what to plant, when to plant it, how you're going to terminate it, all those kind of things. Um, you know, I'm, I'm multiple years into it and I'm still struggling with, I don't want to say majorly struggling, but I'm struggling with, you know, kind of exactly what that recipe is that that's somewhat repeatable from year to year where I kind of know, know what's coming, what to expect, how I'm going to establish it, all those kind of things. So it's a, um, it's a game of trial and error, but you just need to be prepared for what you're trialing. So, and, and kind of have that, have that solid crop plan in the back of your mind and then, um, you know, being able to add the right cover crop mix to it. Sounds good. Well, if you guys don't have anything else, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. We appreciate everybody listening today. We appreciate Emily uh, taking the time to to sit down with us today and and record this. I'm sure we'll get her back on here at, at some point in the future, and you'll be seeing her uh, out in the field and, and all over the place, I'm sure. So definitely looking forward to that. So anyway, thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks again to you guys for sitting down and recording today. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Made for Agriculture. Email comments and questions to podcast at mfa-inc.com.